Do we know everything there is to know about a push-up? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Man, we're coming off a great week last week. Um, great questions from last week. So, so some of those videos are, are uh, um, very, very deep and informative. So take advantage of those. Go back through the Instagram or, or on YouTube. Um, those of you that are on iFastU, last week's Q&A, which was killer, is now posted. Um, we just got off the intensive Facebook group call yesterday talking about cool stuff like the difference between right and left um, ACL injuries and demonstrating amazing changes in the, uh, the intensive Facebook group as well with, with people applying the model very effectively. So, so lots of cool stuff. I'm hoping this week is at least as good as last. So with that in mind, let's dig into uh, today's Q&A. This comes from Malti. Um, and Malti was on the, uh, the coffee and coaches conference call last Thursday. So we'll be there uh, this Thursday, 6 a.m. Please join us. Um, and Malti says, thanks so much for a great call this morning. You're very welcome. Um, I have a question based on the discussion of push-ups and internal rotation force production. I've used attention and radiation techniques in the typical push-up coaching cues that involve telling a client to break the bar or peel the floor apart. While definitely a successful method of getting the abdominals involved, these tactics would seem to favor external rotation of the glenohumeral joint. Does this have implications on force production? And is there a better way to coach this broadly speaking? Thank you. All right, this is actually a really good question because I think push-ups are one of those exercises that, that are poorly executed by a, a number of people. And, and so if we understand a little bit more about how we're actually moving through space and how we're actually producing force, I think we're gonna get a lot better at number one, coaching them, and then number two, making decisions as to whether it's even an appropriate exercise for, for someone to perform. Let's start with the dirty little secret uh, about the push-up. Um, most folks would say that the, the, the top position of the push-up is the start position, the bottom position is, is the, the end position, and I would respectfully disagree. We have to reverse this process. We have to think a little bit differently. And I would compare this to how we would say that, that the first squat is performed by, by a young child. So for those of you that have small children that went through this, this evolution from the ground up where they learned how to, how to stand, they didn't stand and then squat and then stand back up. They actually moved into a squat and then stood up. So we wanna look at the push-up from the same perspective that the bottom position is actually going to be the start. And so if we look at the upper extremity relative to the hand, what we're gonna see is that we're gonna be in, a, in an early phase of propulsion. And so this is going to be towards an external rotation bias. And if we move towards the top, we're, we're gonna move towards middle propulsion, but we're never gonna quite get there. And so, so we're always carrying a little bit of this, this ER bias with it. Even as the force production increases, we need to hang on to external rotation. So, so Malti, your, your intention of maintaining this, this ER cueing throughout the push-up is actually quite accurate. We need to be able to hang on to that, which means we're gonna need some, some posterior expansion throughout because we're never really gonna make it through towards that middle to max propulsive um, position through the upper extremity. If we look at the, uh, the, uh, the shoulder girdle itself, um, the, the shoulder girdle is gonna maintain um, that, that ER bias throughout. And so the thing that we always wanna remember is that this internal rotation is superimposed upon the, the field of external rotation. But let's be clear here that this is not an arc. It is not an arc. Is it a four-dimensional space that actually changes shape depending on what position you're in and then the compression and expansion strategies that you're going to utilize because we're gonna show a massive IR bias here at the end of this little talk um, where we actually take away a ton of the, of, of the external rotation. Um, if we move down to the hand, we can look at the hand as it moves through higher force production very much like we do a foot. So, so let me grab the foot real quick. And so if we think about like an early propulsive foot, we have this, this externally rotated tibia, we've got an arch in the foot, and then as the tibia translate, 
translates forward, we have this drop of the arch. Now, if I started in an early propulsive strategy here and I move towards this middle, but I don't quite get there, you'll see that the arch does drop down to a small degree as the tibia starts to internally rotate. And we're gonna see the exact same thing going through the hand. But because we're not gonna reach max P, we're not gonna see a maximum pronation through the hand, but we are gonna see it move in, in that general direction. So, so once again, we do have movement towards internal rotation to, to produce the higher force, but we're maintaining the air bias. Now at the thorax, the scapulae are going to move towards one another to promote compression through the higher force path as you move through the push-up. But at the top, you should see a recovery of that posterior expansion. So we're gonna see a, a, a fairly strong yielding action in that posterior thorax to help us maintain the compressive force into the ground and to maintain the, that yield um, that we need, need posteriorly. The way that I would look at this is, is that your scaps should be friends, but they should never meet. We don't wanna see scaps that are, that are compressing against one another. That's gonna be a compensatory strategy to, to magnify the amount of compression. So let's go ahead and talk about some of these faults that are gonna show up um, in, in uh, a lot of the push-ups that you're gonna see or, or attempt to coach. Most of these, these compensatory strategies are, are to increase a compression strategy or to gain internal rotation. So once again, we're gonna see this medial border of the scapula try to compress against the dorsal rostral thorax. And so if, if we see a magnification of that, that we're gonna see the scapula approximate, which is again, trying to capture this, this internally rotated orientation to produce force. Um, anytime you see an increase in lumbar curve, so if you see somebody that is performing a push-up with, with traditional extension, what they're trying to do is they're trying to internally rotate into the ground. So they're trying to capture more internal rotation and create some downward force um, because they can't do it otherwise. Um, scapular elevation is gonna be another common compensatory strategy. This is another attempt to capture internal rotation as is the, the humeral position moving away from the body, which is going to move it towards more internal rotation. Um, you'll see something as strong as a forward head also trying to create more internal rotation into the ground. So again, all these compensatory strategies are something that, that is incapable of maintaining the appropriate ER bias and producing force through this early towards middle uh, propulsive strategy. So obvious substitutions then under those circumstances, you drop them down to their knees. So a typical push-up is gonna be somewhere in the general vicinity of 75% of the body weight load on the hand in the bottom position to about 70% of the top, give or take a few percentage points. Um, if you drop them to your knees, it's gonna be about, about 60 at the, at the highest uh, load and 50 at the at the least and then obviously if that doesn't work then you can move them to an elevated position where you would do something where you just put a bar in a rack and, and basically you're just elevating the floor so to speak and reducing the amount of load on the hands so so Malti I hope this answers your question for you I think you need to continue with your with your cues for for the ER bias but also make sure that you're modifying the exercise appropriately so people can actually execute a, a, a decent push-up. If you have any other questions, please give it to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. So a while back we did a video on three shoulder impingements, three strategies, three solutions. Wouldn't it be cool if the hip was the same? It is. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. That's really good. Just got off a mentorship call, so I'm a little fired up. It was a really, really good one. It was very, very, very much fun. So um, let's go ahead and dig into to Tuesday's Q&A. And this comes from Chris. Chris and I were having a discussion and he says, I really appreciate the three impingements, three strategies, three solutions for the shoulder that you did. Would there be something similar going on in the hip regarding uh, impingement? And if so, could you do the same thing for the hip that you did for the shoulder? Thanks. So, um, Chris, you're not going to believe this, but this hip impingement thing is exactly like the impingements in the shoulder. We just have to look at it from the appropriate perspective. And so... When we did the shoulder thing, we talked about the, the three classic impingement tests that we would use, and then we gave solutions. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna compare these, 
these hip uh, representations directly to the shoulder representations and you'll kind of see how this all plays out. And so we'll talk about like what interferes and what doesn't and then we'll give some exercise progression. So there'll be a fair number of, of uh, exercise examples in this, I think, as we go through this. So, so let's break this down a little bit. So we had in the shoulder, we did the Hawkins Kennedy um, we did a nearest test and then we did like the classic painful arc. And so the way that these are going to be represented in the hip is going to be through our hip flexion, traditional hip flexion measures and, and through our abduction measures. So, so, so all of these are going to be representative of, of, of external rotation measures, but the interference is going to be internal rotation on, on every, in every case. And so we're going to have a, a situation where because of the orientation, we're going to give up some some ER. We're going to have an overemphasis on on the IR, and that's what causes the 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 compressive strategies that can actually result in pain, or as we would say, a diagnosis of impingement. And so let's let's look at the Hawkins Kennedy uh, test first. So if we look at the shoulder, we're going to see that it's internal rotation at about 90 degrees of traditional uh, flexion, and so that would be representative of internal rotation superimposed on a little bit of hip flexion at 90 degrees in the hip. And so there's there's our our, our commonality. But what we got is as far as findings are concerned is this is going to be a situation where we've got posterior lower compression so we're going to lose early hip flexion um, because ex uh, hip external rotation under these circumstances would be in this early stage of hip flexion but the problem is, is we got to think about this in 4d remember it's not an arc okay so if i'm coming up this way that would normally be external rotation. The problem is under these circumstances with the posterior lower compression, external rotation is way out there. And so external rotation goes this away, not straight up in front. If I go straight up in front, I'm moving into internal rotation, which means I'm going to max out my internal rotation too soon. And then under those circumstances, I keep driving harder and harder into internal rotation, and I bang into it right at 90 degrees. And so there's my, there's my compressive strategy. So what we have here is an outlet, a pelvic outlet, that wants to remain narrow, wants to remain um, eccentrically oriented. So as far as interference goes, we want to eliminate all this bilateral hip extension kind of stuff because, again, ER is way out there. We want to restore it here in the middle. So, so this means that those of you who are, are just fond of your hip thrust because you wanted glute development, let's get off of that train right now. No low cable pull-throughs, and then your reverse hypers are also going to be off the table under those circumstances. So from an exercise standpoint, we want to reorient the pelvis and we're going to stick with unilateral activities. And so you know how I love my cross connects. And so we're going to use a cross connect, but I want you to pay attention to something very, very important here. And this is going to be your foot contacts. And so if we're doing a supine cross connect, we want to make sure that we're capturing the foot position on the wall. This is first met head on the ground, so to speak. The ground is now the wall and we got that medial heel contact. We want to maintain that throughout because this is where we're starting to initiate internal rotation from an externally rotated position. And this is what we have to recapture when we're, when we're talking about reorienting the pelvis. And then we want to move to, to something that's a little bit more hip flexion so we can move into a hook lying situation. We still want to induce some internal rotation, so we're going to put something between your knees to hang on to that internal rotation, um, but from a position of external rotation first. Once we can capture 90 degrees of hip flexion, we've got a lot of cool stuff that we can do. So we can start some rolling activities, and we're going to teach you how to roll in, into the affected side and we're going to drive propulsive strategies on the opposing side. Um, as far as some, some gym related stuff, um, we want to use, uh, we can use our box squat, but we're going to use a touch and go. So remember, we've got an eccentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. We want to concentrically orient that sucker. And so if, if I unload on the box, I'm going to get some of that eccentric orientation and, and some yielding action that I don't want. Um, I, I can then again, because I have 90 degrees of hip flexion, I can start to turn into that side so I can start to capture a true internal rotation at the right point. And so that's going to be my Jefferson uh, split squat's going to become real handy because I'm going to start from that ER orientation and I'm going to hang on to ER orientation as I start to superimpose the normal IR on top of it. Um, we could use um, split stance activities that, that are, are using like an ipsilateral cable load. So if I was doing a left foot forward split squat, I could put the cable in the left hand, hold that left side back, and again, I'm going to move from an ER position to an IR position under, under those normal circumstances. 3D straps that are going to push you push you into the original orientation and teach you how to resist and move into it. Another uh, great opportunity to, to recapture these positions. 
Um, let's move on to the next one. So we talked about the near, which is which is uh, impingement above 120 degrees in the shoulder. So we're going to represent this kind of the same way. So this is going to be the end range hip flexion measure where we're going to start to, to, to feel that impingement. And so what we have here is a situation where um, what I need under those circumstances to have a normal hip flexion and range is I have to have a, sp a lumbar spine that can turn towards that measurement side of, of the hip, so the ipsilateral side. If, I, if a spine can't turn that way, then I'm going to end up with, with that end range impingement. So this is going to be a wide ISA that can't close. And so now I have a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So right away, my interference is going to be hinging activity. So i got to minimize hinging activities. The exception might be... Um, a higher box squat with, with a delay strategy on the box so I can get the outlet to, to eccentrically orient and capture some yielding action. So that might be the exception to that. Um, we do have 90 degrees available to us, so we can do all sorts of cool things. So we're going to start in a staggered um, chopping action. We, we want to reduce the, the effects of gravity, but we also want to start to be able to turn the spine towards the affected side. And so in the staggered stance, we, we're not compressing um, that hip and we can start to encourage the turn of the sacrum, turn of the spine in that direction. This is where we're gonna to start to use our, our Camperini deadlift because again, we do have 90 degrees available to us. We wanna turn the spine. So I'm gonna put a, a contralateral load on my Camperini deadlift um, towards the heels elevated side. And again, to turn the spine in the sacrum. If I want to go into a split squat activity, I can do that as well, but I'm going to elevate the, the front heel under these circumstances. So again, I, I want to maintain that, that, that yield as I move into that 90 degrees. If I need to um, promote more expansion, more yielding action, I can start to move you into a, a prone propulsive activity as well. Ultimately, what I want to be able to do um, is, is to recapture an eccentrically oriented pelvic outlet in deep hip flexion. So, so my ultimate uh, resolution here is going to be a heels elevated deep squat with a band around the knees. But this is not pushing out into the band. This is maintaining an orientation of the femur so I can get the pelvis to move around the femur. And this is going to help me capture that eccentric orientation of the outlet in the bottom of the deep squat. And so basically we're at the top of the squat. We're going to take an inhale. We're going to exhale to mid-range where we would typically have the concentric orientation. And then I'm going to re-inhale to eccentrically orient the pelvic diaphragm as I sit down into that, that deep squat. Okay, so that covers the Hawkins Kennedy in the shoulder with the equivalent in the hip, the near in the shoulder with the equivalent in the hip. And so now we have to have a painful arc. And so under these circumstances, what we're going to use is the traditional hip abduction measure, also an external rotation measure. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to have a hip that has a lot of internal rotation and not a lot of external rotation. And we're going to see that limitation in, in uh, hip abduction or external rotation. And we're going to get more of a lateral type of a discomfort. Where this is going to commonly show up is, is we're going to see people with the uh, right oblique orientation of the pelvis. And so where we get the compressive strategy is, is here, and it's going to drive this left side up and over the right side. So this is our typical right oblique. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the impingement on this side. And so this is the inability to acquire a late propulsive strategy on that affected side. So from an interference standpoint, we want to avoid the bilateral symmetrical activities for a while because what we have to do under these circumstances is take that right side and push back into the left to overcome the, the oblique axis. So we can start in left side line with a, a right propulsive type of an activity. Um, in this case, if we go into the gym, we're going to use our Camperini deadlift again with the, with the heel elevated, but this time we're going to put an ipsilateral load on that heel elevated side because what we want to do is we want to, we want to hold that back and push with the right foot, and, and that load's going to emphasize that, that right push. So again, we're turning back against the oblique. We can do a right foot uh, forward, front foot elevated, right side loaded split squat. So this is, this is about driving that, that late propulsive strategy on the right side all day, every day. Right suitcase carry is going to get us, get us there. Go back to, to the video that we did about the suitcase carry 
it was a week or so ago, and you'll see that we were talking about increasing max P on the opposing side, but we're gonna take advantage of the ipsilateral side under these circumstances, um, where we would normally use like a cable chopping activity in the early phases of trying to recapture um, the, the, the turn of the spine. Under these circumstances, I'm gonna use a cable lift because I'm trying to drive that right propulsive strategy, and it's much easier to do a cable lift under these circumstances and, and still capture the, the turn into the, the opposite side. Um, a little bit of a finish kind of conditioning thing. Your right to left sled drag is gonna be a nice way to finish because again, we're just emphasizing that, that right propulsive strategy. Um, so Chris, I hope that is helpful for you and for the rest of you. Remember the shoulders and the hips are very much the same, so, so don't treat them any differently. Um, very, very useful in regards to your confirmations and checks and balances in regards to range of motion, so use them accordingly. Um, if you have any other questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. It's Wednesday, so let's talk dorsal rostral expansion. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, well, it's Wednesday. And so that means that tomorrow's Thursday, which means at 6 a.m. tomorrow, we've got the coffee and coaches conference call as usual. These calls have been great. The group is getting getting bigger. Everybody's getting comfortable with the format. So there's a lot of back and forth, which has been been really, really good. I've enjoyed these calls tremendously. We're just going, we go long on these babies because they're, they're again, there's just so much fun. So uh, please join us for that. Okay, Wednesday, crunch time. Gotta dig in. I wanna talk about dorsal rostral expansion uh, today because it, uh, I got a couple questions that came through q and had a couple clients that were, were dealing with a couple of issues. And um, it, it seems that, that people actually have difficulty uh, sensing whether they are accomplishing this task or not. So real quick, let's talk about measures that are gonna support um, whether we are, are identifying the reacquisition of dorsal rostral expansion. So this is gonna be your traditional measures of external rotation at 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. And so when you lose that measure, it's pretty clear that, you're, that you've got dorsal rostral compression issues uh, that are preventing you from capturing the shoulder position to allow external rotation to occur. Um, you're also probably gonna lose horizontal abduction under these circumstances as well. So monitor those first and foremost. Number two, you've got to eliminate interference. So the 13th commandment, thou shalt not create interference um, in regards to your goals. And so let's get all that stuff out of the way. So bilateral symmetrical rowing, chin ups and pull downs with an extreme arch, um, supine pressing, like bench pressing um, with scapular, uh, scaps approximated, um, and then things like bilateral face pulls. Now, none of these exercises are bad. It's just that when we're trying to reacquire dorsal muscle expansion, they are interference. Unilateral activities can actually create some, some um, reciprocal turning, which can be a benefit under, under certain circumstances. But in many of these cases, these are great exercises for things like powerlifting and bodybuilding because number one, they increase the compressive strategy that allows you to increase force production in your bench press, which is great. Um, they flatten you out, which makes you wider. So bodybuilders love this kind of stuff, but you're gonna sacrifice something in the process in most cases, in most cases. Um, other activities that, that, are, that are interference. So the traditional I's, T's and Y's that everybody thinks that they need to do for shoulder health. There are certain people that benefit from this and then there are a lot of people that don't. Um, all you gotta do is remember the Terry Project um, from, from way back. Um, Terry was a guy that came to me that had been doing a program that, that, that had I season wise as a foundation and was trying to actually improve his posture and, and got the double whammy of, of actually working really, really hard and then not getting the return investment and actually went in the wrong direction. So, so please keep that in mind. So what I wanna do is I'm just gonna cut away. We're gonna, I'm gonna do a series of, of clips that we've, we've uh, used in, in the past that will be of great benefit. But before I do that, go to the ITNY video on YouTube, make sure you watch that. And then we're gonna look at a clip on feeling dorsal rostral expansion so you understand what that actually feels like. And I'm gonna show you two of my favorite exercises for, for uh, expanding the dorsal rostral area. One is a seated version, which is great for people that have wide infrasternal angles, concentrically oriented pelvic outlets. Um, and then the standing version, which is the better band pull apart video. 
um, which I just love that exercise for a lot of people. So hopefully that, that is helpful for you guys today. Have a great Wednesday, and then we will see you tomorrow morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. See ya. So I got a question from Ryan, and Ryan says, I'm wondering what dorsal rostral expansion should feel like. I think I know how to do it, and I believe I can see it during certain exercises, although I'm not sure how it should feel. Any exp explanation would be helpful. Um, Ryan, this is a really good question because I think that, that it's a lot easier for us to visualize this on someone else than it is to feel it ourselves. So let's go through a couple of potential strategies that might be helpful. So Ryan, one of the simplest things that you can do is actually just anchor the upper extremity and then try to create the dorsal rostral expansion. So one of the easiest ways to do this is to keep us through this inhalation strategy in the early phases of flexion. So all I really need to do is turn towards my table and I'm gonna anchor my hands on the table so I'm not leaning on them because that could potentially create a compressive strategy posteriorly, but I do wanna have, have physical contact with the table. I'm also gonna emphasize the, the pisiform side of, of the heel of my hand, so the pinky side of my hand, because that's gonna help me promote posterior expansion of the dorsal rostral area. So as I anchor my hands on the table, that's my, my primary point of contact. I'm gonna extend the arms and I'm gonna try to create as much space between my scapula as possible. Now, a lot of folks under these circumstances have a tendency to wanna to try to elevate the scaps. So the easiest cue that I give folks is go ahead and shrug up as hard as you can, but then unshrug, and that's the position that I want you to push from. And so now all I wanna do is create distance away from the table. So I'm, I, while I don't wanna lean on the table, I'm gonna push myself away from the table, and that's gonna create a stretching sensation between my scapula. Then if I take my inhalation from there, and I breathe in, I start to feel an increase in that stretching sensation, and that's your dorsal rostral area expanding. Ryan, I'd also refer you to the dorsal rostral expansion exercise in sitting that is already up on YouTube. Ryan, if you're still having trouble feeling dorsal rostral expansion, here's a, a little tweak that we can give to a similar position that we use with hands on the table. But what I want you to do is you're gonna make fists, you're gonna crisscross your fists and put the pinky side of, of your hands together. Drop it down between your knees. I'm gonna turn sideways so you can see this. I'm gonna just give myself a little bit of squeeze with my knees, nothing too strong. And then I'm gonna to try to move away from my hands. And again, making sure I have, a, have the unshrugged position and I'm gonna pull away. And again, what you're gonna feel is a little bit more dorsal rostral expansion under those circumstances by that stretch between the scapula. And then once again, I would hit a comfortable inhalation so you can feel that area expand. I would avoid an aggressive inhalation as this might cause a compensatory breathing strategy where you would try to expand anteriorly versus posteriorly. So again, a gentle inhalation under those circumstances fists crossed, arms long, and try to create that space between the scapula. See how that works for you, Ryan. If it doesn't, let me know and we'll figure something else out. So I got a question from Mike and Mike asks, what's the best strategy for one to achieve dorsal rostral expansion without creating a bunch of forward bending of the spine? So this is a really common uh, problem because a lot of people can't differentiate between expanding that dorsal rostral area between the scapula and bending the spine forward. So I'm just gonna show you a little activity that's, that's very easy to execute and will give you a very true sensation of, of dorsal rostral expansion. You're gonna need a little bit of a band, a little bit of band tension, and you're gonna need a surface to rest your elbows on. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna support my elbows on the surface. I'm gonna make sure that I'm not reaching above 60 degrees, but I want the elbows in front of the body. Now, I'm gonna imagine somebody pulling down on my back pockets a little bit, and so that's gonna bring me back towards my, the, the posterior or, the, or the, the back side of my sit bones or ischial tuberosities. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna use the, the surface to expand posteriorly between the shoulder blades and then push my hands apart. So I'm supinating and externally rotating without moving my elbows. So I'm trying to get my hands a little bit wider than my elbows. Now if I take a breath in here, I get pure dorsal rostral expansion. So that gives me the sensation. Now I can take that sensation and just carry it over to any other activity where I'm also trying to achieve that dorsal rostral expansion. So give that a try. If you're doing some kind of band pull-apart activity, thinking that you can alleviate your shoulder pain with bench pressing, you might want to think again. 
The band pull-apart actually compresses the space between the shoulder blades that steals the range of motion in your shoulder that might be causing the pain in the first place. Instead, try this. Take a short band around your wrist like so. Put your forearms against the wall. Keep your elbows below shoulder level. Take a little baby squat. Tuck your hips under. Push back to expand the space between your shoulder blades and then pull your hands apart. You're going to feel a little bit of burn on the back of the shoulder, but you're also going to get that expansion in the upper back that's going to restore the shoulder range of motion that bench press is stealing. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it's perfect as usual. I got a question, Bill. I got an answer. What was your philosophy when you first started and how has it changed? <laughs> days? Oh, Nikki, you don't want to go there. Why? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how old I am? Yes. You know how many, do you know how many evolutions that I've been through? Yeah, let's hear it. Oh, it was horrible. It was miserable. I was, I was an idiot. I was, I was, I would not send, I would not send my worst enemy to, to Bill Hartman year one. <laughs> and so, so again, it's like, again, I, I, I don't, I don't think about that stuff too much to be honest with you, Nikki, cause I don't like, I don't like where I was when I started, you know, it was kind of embarrassing and, um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's just it's just been an evolution. Like the last ten years have been really really good. I've just been able to ask better questions because I, I've had enough reps and and horrible miserable failures. You know, I think I was a, I was I was young when I came out of school. So so the 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 concept of failure was was um, something that I was afraid of. Rather, and now it's like it's just another part of the puzzle. So if you want to go like like hardcore end game philosophy, that's probably the biggest thing. It's like I I'm just not afraid to 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 fail anymore. Like so, I did not have a philosophy when I came out of school. I was lost. I was I was a puppy. I was a I was a I had an oatmeal for a brain. That brings me to my next question. <laughs> okay, it's the Nikki Show. Go ahead. Somebody has to have a show today. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, you mentioned that you felt lost after a thing. Have you ever felt lost during your career path? And what helped you like find your spot or your place in your career where you didn't feel lost anymore? So I quit for a year. Um, mm -hmm. I actually quit for a year. I did, I did something else. Um, because I thought it was going to be a big thing and it turned out to be absolutely nothing. Um, so coming back from that, um, that, that was an, an important, it was important for me to do that. I actually recognize the fact that um, there's only a few things that I'm good at, right? So yeah, I always talk to people, it's like emphasize your strengths because your weaknesses will always be weaknesses. And so, so that, was a, that was a year of discovery for me where I, I did, I found out it's like, hey, you know what? I was really good at the other thing. And that's where I should spend my time. And then it, it, that's where the, 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 the drive started to come from. And, and then again, my curiosity coming back from that year, um, it was exceptionally high. And so I just started asking a lot of questions and then looking for the answers. And then um, there's this thing that, that is, is, I think it's gaining some popularity now called the internet. And, and there was a lot of more information that was available to me. So, so back in the old days, what we used to do is we used to have to read books and you actually had to go to the library where they had the journals to get articles. And then you had a card, like a credit card that you would put into the, the machine that would actually make a photocopy. And you used to have to photocopy the articles and take them home with you instead of downloading the PDF in about two seconds. And so that's, I, I would spend, I would go to the, there, there's a, a medical school downtown. I would spend hours on the weekends um, at the, at the medical school library, downloading articles. All right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, like I said, there was just that moment of recognition. It's like, yeah, I'd probably just need to stick with what I'm good at and then just develop that as hard as I possibly can. 
And I had a, I had a couple of people that, that gave me a little bit of guidance early on from, from PT school, actually. And I, I got to work with one of my mentors for a couple of years. Yeah. Is, do you think it's normal to feel lost at some point in your career? I don't know. I think it's going to be an individual thing. I think some people are just really, really self-aware and, and that's the, one of the greatest of superpowers. Um, and it just like, some of us find it early. Some, I like, I'm a late bloomer. I'm 50, I'm going to be 55 in May. So I'm, I'm a really late bloomer as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that the, if, if I would have had the opportunity to be exposed to the amount of information that is available now, I think it would be a, probably a different evolution, but I'm really happy about the way that it turned out because um, I'm, I'm like ridiculously happy um, where I am in life in general. Like it took me forever to get here, but I'm really happy to be here. And so again, I think you just kind of, everybody finds their own way, but, but feeling lost is not something to, to worry about as long as you remain curious and as long as you continue to ask questions and as long as you continue to seek more information um, and not just information, but, but to gain the experience that goes with it. I have um, one more deeper questions on the Bill Hardman show this morning. <laughs> like, can, can we just talk about infrastructural angles and stuff? <laughs> That's why everybody's here. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so on that note, and like kind of like on the tail end of all of those, what do you think that, personally like inside of you not outside of your environment or not necessarily learning but you personally on the inside made you successful or made you who you are now like I know that like I think like you like you put out some of the answers but what do you think that's like the three like most successful traits in you like is it yeah Um, well, number one, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm happy. I don't know that I'm successful. Okay. I'm happy, which is more important. Um, having a curiosity about what you do is, is, is one of the most powerful things because it drives you to, to continue to, to progress, right? I still have questions. I still look for answers, right? And um, and so I think that that's probably a number one. Like the minute you stop being curious, you don't ask questions anymore. And then you make an assumption that you know enough and then there's no growth. And, and one of my greatest fears is that I'm actually an old man sitting in a nursing home, sitting in a wheelchair and all this is being imagined, right? because that's where I don't want to be. <laughs> I always want to be invested and, and excited about what I do. And so I think the curiosity is, is the number one thing because it does continue to push you. Like when you're tired, but you still have to answer that one question because it's just burning up inside of you to, to have an answer. And, and so, so that, I, I don't know if I would have a top three, to be honest with you, because I just think that the, the, the curiosity drives the excitement, the excitement drives the motivation. And then, then the discovery is the reward. So, you know, it's just people like to talk about, like they know something about the brain and they, they say, Oh, it's your dopamine reward system. It's like, okay, so let's just say that that, that is what's going on. It's like every time you discover something new or something of value or something that kind of makes sense and you do get that, that excitement, you know, like, like, you know, getting the, the, getting that perfect, the, the perfect red velvet cake with the extra, uh, 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 buttercream icing on it, you know, what I'm talking about, you know, and then you put the, you put the, your favorite, uh, uh, uh caramel flavored ice cream on top of it. Does everybody do that? Or is it just me? Um, so, so, you know, it's that moment where it's just like, this is perfect. And you feel that, and then you get driven again. So, but without the curiosity, I don't think I don't think there's a cascade like that. And so, so I, if you're not if you're not curious about this, and and um, then you're not going to do well, because the struggle is there for a reason to keep the challenge in front of you, which is really, really important. But if you're not curious and then you struggle, now you hate yourself and you hate every moment and you can't live like that.
So let's use the golf swing as a representation of our expansion to compression to expansion model. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, I am still in the afterglow of yesterday's coffee and coaches conference call. It was, it was different than any call that we've had before. We went a couple hours, it felt like two minutes. Really, really good questions, tough questions actually. Um, kind of philosophical, but uh, got a lot of great feedback on that. So I hope you can join us next Thursday, 6 a.m. for the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Now, let's dig into today's Q&A. It's gonna allow us to examine some of our our expansion to compression to expansion concepts, and we're gonna do it under the guise of a, of a golf swing. There's, this is a two-parter question. And um, like I said, we'll, we'll review some, some, some external rotation and, and internal rotation concepts. We'll look at the swing, and then we're gonna look at some of the, the negative secondary consequences of when we don't have this, this, this representation of expansion to compression, um, because I think a lot, of, a lot of things show up clinically um, when, when people either lose their, their capabilities or they train away some capabilities. So let's go to Johnny's question. Johnny says, hey Bill, hey Johnny, is hip abduction, and he puts it in quotes, Johnny's really smart, um, at 90 degrees of traditional hip flexion, once again, I like the traditional, hip flexion considered ERR. Okay, so is this, is this movement away from midline, internal rotation or external rotation? So let's grab the pelvis and let's take a look at this thing. So when we look at, at where we are at, at 90 degrees, so, so theoretically, if everything's all fine and wonderful, we're gonna be starting from, from this position of, of internal rotation. But we have to consider when we have movement away from midline, um, when we want to decide what's happening here, here at the hip, we have to consider the relationship between the femur, the innominate bone, the sacrum, and the lumbar spine, because all of them are going to contribute to the, the position and the movement. And so under whatever circumstances this may be occurring, I can have a different, a different outcome. So if I start from, from this position, which we would say is traditional hip flexion at 90 degrees, and I'm gonna move away. If I have an innominate that is biased towards, towards inhalation, as this moves away from midline, I'm gonna see more of an external rotation. And, and, but visually, obviously, it's gonna move in, in this straight line, if you will. But the reality is, is that I'm producing a rotation um, here, here at the hip joint. If I am biased towards an inhalation strategy at the pelvis, then what I'm gonna see is I'm gonna see a turn this way as it moves away from, from midline, and now I've produced an internal rotation. So, so Johnny, I think that, that when you're trying to determine uh, you know, which one it is, you're gonna have to look at the context in which, which it's being applied. And so if I was in a split squat and I see someone's knee deviate outward under most circumstances, you're gonna have somebody that's gonna be biased towards inhalation. That's gonna be an ER, ER kind of a situation. Um, sometimes in, in, as you see people move through that 90 degrees in, in a deep squat, for them to actually achieve the deep squat, what they're doing is they're moving that hip into internal rotation even as the knees are deviating, deviating away from, from midline. So again, I think you need to pay attention to those to those relationships. So now let's go to your second part of your question. And, and Johnny asks, what does the, the, the internal rotation representation of the pelvis look like and how might you um, go about acquiring this? And he asks because um, he wants to relate it to the, to the golf swing. Because we've talked about this before, um, where I mentioned that, that the two ends of the golf swing are, are external rotation, which I think is a confusing to a lot of people because I think that the representation has always been that it is an IR position. One of the things that we always need to understand is that we have superimposition of internal and external rotations. It's not an either or. So dead guy anatomy has given us this imaginary zero point that's straight up. And so anything out here is ER, anything in here is IR. And the reality is, is that we have this, this expansive field of ER and we superimpose internal rotation on, on, on top of that. And so, if we take away the external rotation field, so if I squeeze this external rotation field inward, then that creates a limitation on my internal rotation capabilities. And this is where we're gonna see compensatory strategies evolve. And we'll get to that kind of at the, at the end of this talk where we talk about some of the substitutions 
um, that we may see for this this loss of, of range of motion. But but we want to go back and, and look at how our external rotation represents our expansive strategy. It, and we move towards internal rotation. This is where we have that maximal compressive uh, capability. And, and this is where our highest force is produced at this point of maximal compression. Our expansion is where we demonstrate movement and velocity. So let's not confuse the two because we move into these positions of internal rotation and that's where time stops. That's where we squeeze. That's where we compress and that's where we produce our, our highest forces. Now, what does this ER look like in the pelvis? Because Johnny, I want to talk about the ER position so we can move you towards the IR position so you get that representation as well. Now, what I would refer you to, um, we talked about early and late propulsive strategies in a recent video. I think it was back in December. Um, I'll, I'll post the, the little, little thingy here that you can click on on YouTube. But, but so we're gonna look at, at this early propulsive uh, strategy. So I'm gonna talk about the right hip. So this, if I was a right-handed golfer, this would be my backside hip. So my, my backswing is gonna go, go to the right. And so what we're gonna see, Johnny, is we're gonna see this, this sacrum moving back on the ilium because I gotta turn the sacrum towards the, towards the right side. I gotta turn the lumbar spine towards the right side. Lumbar spine can't turn in that direction if, I am, if I'm internally rotated on this side. So I have to have this representation of external rotation. Now, does that mean that there's no internal rotation? Absolutely not because I have to create this first and then I can actually turn into this hip. And so again, I'm starting to superimpose internal rotation on top of my field of external rotation that is created by my early propulsive representation in the pelvis. So let me reach over here, give me one second. I gotta grab my foot. So now, if we talk about foot position, and you'll see this on, on just about every golfer, um, but when I see my foot position, I got this early propulsive representation of the foot that's gonna look like that as they move into their, their backswing. But I wanna make sure that I hang on to this first metatarsal head because if I, if I pick that up off the ground, I am in a compensatory strategy. And so you'll see this in people that do not have their full field of external rotation. They try to internally rotate on top of it and they don't have enough rotational capability. So they end up picking up their big toe off the ground and, and they can still turn, but it becomes an orientation. And if I can recapture the first metatarsal head as I, as I perform my downswing, a lot of good things can still happen. But if I don't do that, then I'm all over the place. I, I'm gonna hit bad, I'm gonna hit thin. Who knows what the club face is gonna do actually under those circumstances. And so if you're spraying the ball all over the place, I would start looking at your, your right foot position. Um, if we look at the thorax, we're gonna have the same concept that we have in the pelvis. So where I was creating that, that yielding action um, in, in that early propulsive representation, I'm gonna have a thorax that looks like basically the same shape. I'm gonna create a, a delay in, in that, that right side of the thorax. I'm gonna have an expansive strategy in, in the right side of the thorax and that's what's going to allow me to turn. So turning is both sides moving forward at the same time. It's just that one side is moving faster than the other and that's what produces the turn. So I have the delay on the right, I have overcoming on the left and that's what produces my turn into my backswing. Now, Johnny, your question about the internal rotation representation. So if I am moving from my expanded inhalation ER strategy, early propulsive uh, representation um, in the backswing, I need to get to IR. So that's gonna turn the sacrum straight ahead. I'm gonna IR both ilia, and I'm gonna be in this exhaled position. This is my high force producing strategy. So this is my IR representation. So I went from an ER here to an IR in the middle. This is where the, the pelvic uh, outlet is gonna become concentrically oriented. It's gonna produce my force upward. It's gonna squeeze. I'm gonna compress. And this is my high force producing. So I will have a representation of internal rotation at this point. So if we look at the foot 
The same thing's gonna happen in the foot. I'm gonna move from my early propulsive representation, which is ER with, with my arch. I'm gonna see the arch come down and I'm gonna start to, to lower the arch. I'm gonna drive this into interrotation. So I have a tibia that's moving into interrotation. So I'm gonna see an element of pronation until I get to the point where I have to produce maximum force. So in a golf swing, it's probably where you're, you're in a right-handed golfer, it's gonna be where your left arm is parallel to the ground. That's where you're gonna to start to produce that, that highest force because that's where the club head is going to start to accelerate. That's where you're gonna produce that force. It'll be demonstrated as, and you will immediately move back into external rotation and the club head is gonna pick up all of its speed there. Um, in, the, in the thorax, we're gonna see a much more of a symmetrical representation under most circumstances. You'll see idiosyncratic differences in, in any number of golfers because of physical structure, but basically what we're looking at is we're looking at a, a compressed dorsal rostral thorax under those circumstances. Again, after that instantaneous moment of maximum force production, I'm gonna see the turn into the left and I'm gonna see a reversal of the original strategy that I saw on the backside. So now I'm gonna see the, the delay on the left, I will see the overcoming on the right and that's what's going to allow me to produce my turn to the left. So um, under those circumstances, what we're gonna to need to have then is access to, to an internal rotation that's superimposed on external rotation going to the left. And so again, I'm gonna have the same problem that I had on the backside. If I don't have the ER capabilities in my follow through position, I'm not gonna be able to turn into it and produce my IR. Now, having said that, let's talk about bad things. If I don't have the ER field to turn into to produce my internal rotation, I'm still gonna produce internal rotation. So where am I gonna do this? Well, I'm gonna to have to produce it somewhere else. So I can have an anterior orientation of the pelvis. I could tip my pelvis forward. That's gonna help me produce my internal rotation. But what if I'm trying to produce more external rotation that I don't have because maybe I don't have that ER field. Where can I get it? Well, remember we talked about disc herniations a while back as well. I might use my disc as my yielding strategy. So I create the expansion through the disc. We call that um, anything from a disc bulge to a disc herniation to, to however you want to term it. It's going to be an expansion through the disc. So now I'm a golfer with, with, with a disc problem and I'm going to end up uh, you know, talking to my, to my spinal surgeon um, potentially because I have been using my disc as a yielding strategy instead of producing it through the pelvis, through the spine, and through the hip as I would want to distribute it. So now we're right back to the beginning of your very first question. Um, if I'm talking about not having the, the field of ER at the other end in, in follow through and I want to superimpose internal rotation on top of that, now I might be looking at a, a left knee strategy to, to try to produce that internal rotation. So again, if I don't have the, the, the internal rotation production at the hip the way I would want to, um, I'm going to tip my pelvis down or I turn that femur in to internal rotation to produce force into the ground, and now I've got ACL stress, I've got anterior knee pain because I've got a, got a patella that's getting, getting pulled laterally, so I could have any number of, of maladies that are associated with the orientation and alignment that I'm using to produce internal rotation when I do not have external rotation at both ends. So, so Johnny, the, the, the end game here as far as this, this um, discussion goes is, Yes, I need to have this representation of internal rotation. It's gonna be that nutated sacrum. It's gonna be an IR ilium. I'm gonna have an internal rotation representation that's high force, high compression, concentric pelvic outlet, internal rotation at the hip, tremendous force into the ground, hopefully. But if I don't have the, my field of ER first, I'm not gonna capture that representation. I'm gonna use substitutions and I'm probably gonna pay a little bit of the price for that. So Johnny, I hope that answers your question. Um, if it doesn't, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys next week.